emotional abuse, in my opinion, is significantly worse than physical abuse because it gets in our hearts, it gets in our minds, it gets in our every soul of our body. We lose confidence. Welcome to the Intuitive Woman Podcast with your host, Tina Conroy. Gain clarity, confidence, and trust in your inner wisdom. Explore spiritual topics, including intuition, healing, wellness, yoga, vibrant living, and more. Hey there, Tina here. Welcome to the show. I want to welcome you to the first in a series. This series is called Trouble to Triumph. And there are going to be some amazing, powerful women speaking and being very vulnerable about their story. Now, I want to just caution you that this first episode is very challenging if you are going through abuse or if you've lived abuse, but the story needs to be heard. Also, I am going to leave all the information in the show notes. If you are experiencing abuse, emotional, financial abuse, and physical abuse, please contact somebody and find support. Also, I'm going to leave all the information for Mickey Zeta's information in the show notes to reach out to her and be part of her community and to listen to her podcast. So as I begin, my first guest is Mickey Zeta. Mickey Zeta lived a life of abuse. She lived a life of abuse for over 30 years, and she didn't even know it. Now she is thriving and helping many, many women on this path. She's a brave, powerful, powerful woman. And I know that as you listen to her story, you can resonate with it. If there's someone you know that needs to hear this, please share this episode and also direct her to Mickey. So sit back and thank you for listening. Hi, Mickey. Welcome to the Intuitive Woman Podcast. Hi, Tina. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to be here. I just love spending time with you. So any special time I get is important to me. So I'm so glad that you're able to join in today. Well, thank you. And the feeling is mutual. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So we're going to dive into, and thank you so much for being on the series, Trouble to Triumph. I know that... There is going to be women out there that listen to your story that will resonate with you and relate. And the whole purpose of the series behind it is to really share with other women the stories that they may be going through and then how you have come out the other side and now how you help other women. So I really appreciate it. I don't take it lightly. And I'm grateful that you're willing to be vulnerable with the audience and also heal. Oh, thank you. And, you know, that is such an important aspect of surviving domestic abuse. And that is that when we start speaking our truths and telling our stories, it is healing. It's cathartic. It's absolutely necessary. I didn't realize that for a lot of years. So thanks for this opportunity. Absolutely. So to bring the listeners back, because a lot of listeners may not know you and know your story, can you bring us back to what was going on and take us back as many years as you need to, to kind of put the spotlight on what was happening? Sure. I'd be glad to do that. And I'm not really going to start at the beginning because I didn't realize until I started, created the company of Surviving Abuse Network, I didn't realize how common my story is. So I like to tell it from the beginning because people who are living in abuse, many times we don't even realize we're living in abuse. But when we hear a story, we say, oh my gosh, that's, that's me too. So I was not raised in an abusive family. 
I don't know exactly how it was that I was so attracted to this person, but I was 17 when we started dating and there were such signs in the beginning, such signs, and I ignored them. Primarily, it was because this guy is handsome and he's charismatic. He, he had a brand new car, which <laughs> I didn't have. And he just acted like I was the center of his life. He was a typical abuser, but I didn't know that. Some of the signs that I saw in the beginning were about control. So I was 17, but my dad would not allow us to drive until we were 18. Actually, I got my driver's license like two weeks before I got married. Wow, (laughs) wow. I know, I know it's crazy. But we'd be driving down the road and he had a brand new Mustang. And all of a sudden he would take his hands off the wheel and say, okay, you steer. And I thought it was a joke and I started laughing. And he said, I'm serious, you steer or we're gonna crash. And literally the car is like veering off the road. So I grabbed the steering wheel and keep it between the lines. I don't have a driver's license. I haven't really even driven. So at first I thought it was a game. I thought it was a joke. It wasn't, it was the beginning of control. And so dramatic, he would do it going down the freeway at 70 miles an hour back then. And it was frightening. And I don't know why I didn't run then. (laughs) But I think I had glitter in my eyes. I was in love with the concept of romantic love. I was, at that point, I was about 18 years old. And he acted like I mattered. He acted like I was somebody important to him. And I saw a future with him that I had never had in my life. I saw that I would likely have a life of privilege and country club type things. And that was important to me back then. That's so, I'm just, I'm still going through the picture in my mind of interesting of like driving down the highway or the freeway and him just like take the wheel. And I wouldn't necessarily, as you're saying, it all makes sense, but I guess I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, this could be a pattern. Like it could be just a thrill and it's fun, but I can see now as the story is going to be leading to how it is about control and about fear. So that's, Yeah, that's what it's about. And he was establishing it early on. (laughs) So I was a month and 10 days before my 19th birthday and we got married. And I think I was the only one who thought that was a good idea. (laughs) 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 But I was 18, you know, I I was in love. I had all these romantic ideas about how our life was going to be. And I ignored what people said about him and about being married so young, you know, you know, when you're at that age, you know everything. So we were married. He was still in the army at that point. So we had a little apartment and the emotional abuse started with control, but then it became significant emotional abuse. And I think we were married just over a year the first time I left. Mm. But I didn't put my finger on what really was wrong. I just knew that I was dramatically unhappy And I can't really say because what happens, I liken it to a frog in water. You know, you put a frog in a pot of water that's cold and you heat it up and the frog doesn't realize how hot it's getting. And before he knows it, the frog is cooked. Mm -hmm. That's, That's how it is. I was cooked within a year. I had lost most of my confidence, even though I left him. I didn't think I could survive alone. You know, here I was 19, not quite 20 years old and thinking I can't survive by myself. I had, I didn't go to college, obviously. I got married, I took a job. So, well, that was another thing. When uh, he insisted that I have a job near his base, near, near his military base, before we would get married. Mm. And why didn't I say, what the hell is that? <laughs> 
<laughs> but, but I didn't. What the heck? So I actually left three times. Now, let me, let me just interrupt for one second because I want to bring the listeners back because I think there may be a lot of people that there is such a difference between emotional abuse and physical abuse, but a lot Absolutely. of people will downplay the emotional abuse. And I really believe that emotional abuse is as, I mean, they're both horrible, right? But there is just as bad as, if not more. So can you maybe just talk a little bit about that? Because there may be people listening that think they might be emotionally abused or they have been called it that. Like, can you give us an example or something you feel comfortable sharing? You bet. You know, it's so insipid. Emotional abuse, in my opinion, is significantly worse than physical abuse because it gets in our hearts, it gets in our minds, it gets in our every soul of our body. We lose confidence because we're told constantly. It starts out maybe like games. For example, when we were first married, my husband was the center of my life. I loved him so much. And he would play a game with me and he would say, what are the things that you love? And I would say he's first and then I'd name whatever. And he would name like seven things. And then he would say, and you. Mm. And that is so mean. That is, that's an example of emotional gotcha. abuse. Gotcha. But by that point, I don't know why I was so conditioned to accept that. But a lot of women at that point would have said, you know what, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. There have been too many red flags. But I didn't do that. I stayed and I just kind of absorbed being treated that way. And I firmly believe we teach people how to treat us. So as I accepted the emotional abuse, one day he came home from work and he said, now we'd been married about two years. He came home on a Friday and he said, guess what? I've decided we're going to move. Oh, wow. And I said, what do you mean we're going to move? And he said, now we're living in central Illinois at the time. He said, we're moving on Friday. And I said, we're moving on Friday. Where? I'm thinking his family's in Chicago. Maybe we're going to go to Chicago. And he said, California. I said, we're moving to California on Friday. And he was like, yep. <laughs> well, we didn't own much. We'd only been married a couple of years. We had this silly little Buick special car, old and, uh, it was Christmas time. It was just before Christmas. So we went to his mother's house in Chicago on our way to the out West and said, we're moving and we're moving to California. And she's like devastated because not only because we're moving, but because it's Christmas, we don't have a job. We don't have anything, yeah. but that's what we did. We packed everything we owned, fit in that little car and off we went. And we arrived in La Jolla, California on Christmas Eve. And I thought I was in heaven. <laughs> it was so beautiful. And this is a guy, he's very charismatic. He's very confident. And he had a fabulous job within a week. Hmm. So we settled in California and we lived there for quite some time for, I think, about 12 years. So there's another example. They don't consult in, in emotional abuse. You're not consulted. Decisions are made. Often I would give really good business suggestions and he would just put me down and laugh and say, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. And within the week, he's got the same idea, but it's his and suddenly it's brilliant. Right. So it's always this like, you're not good enough or you're stupid you're, or that's dumb or any that's right. anything you have to say isn't worthy. And he's always smarter, better, all of that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And today, today he would be called a narcissist. Gotcha. We didn't, we didn't have that name. You know, that was not the key word back then. 
But I hung in. I hung in. I left again in California. This was still while there was emotional abuse, so it hadn't changed yet to physical. There's another kind of abuse too, Tina, and that's financial. Mm. It's not talked about much, but especially men who have a lot of money, even if you've been with them from the very beginning, there's financial control. So when I was first married, I was, and now this was 1968, so it was a long time ago, but I was given $20 and that was it. And I better be, be able to account for every penny that I spent of that 20 bucks. If I bought something that he thought was frivolous at the grocery store, he would have a fit. So financial abuse is just as strong. In fact, kind of to fast forward, we build a business together and I'll back up again, but talking about financial abuse, it's not just when you have little money when you're first married, but we had a lot of money and he controlled it all. In fact, when I had great jobs, I turned my paycheck over to him. Mm. Now, when I'm saying this, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, Mickey, (laughs) what were you thinking? Why did you put up with that? But it's the frog issue. I had been so conditioned by that point that this is how life is and this is okay. So, Well, sure. I mean, I think that when anyone's in anything, you think it is what it is or that this is the norm or you love him so much. I think there was a part where you didn't not love him. So it was like, oh, well, he adores me. Even though he was putting you down, I guess over time, it just, you got used to it. I, It must be, this is so, I don't know, like I have like bells going off with the financial abuse because I never thought of it that way. I've always mm-hmm. seen that in other mm-hmm. relationships, but to see what you're saying is so true because they have that power over you. Even when there's not a lot of money, it's like they'll give you $100 a week or they'll tell you that you can't use the, here's this much cash. Or if you go somewhere, what do you buy? Let me see the receipt. That is really control. And that's, That's, I never heard it like that. So, wow. Yeah, that's an important part of, of abuse that people don't, and it's, it's embarrassing. When I finally realized what was going on, it's embarrassing to say, I can't do that because he controls the money and I, I don't have any money left this week to spend. And, you know, I was in my mid-20s probably at that point and earning good money on my own. But that was my life. That's how it was. And somehow I thought that that was normal. Somehow I thought that that was okay. And that I talk to women today and I have since I started surviving abuse and they say the same thing. And they say, I didn't realize, I didn't realize I was living in a controlled, emotionally abusive, even physically abusive relationship. It didn't occur to me that I was an abused spouse or I was an abused girlfriend. Sure. So it's, Bizarre. I don't know how it happens that way, but it does. Now, it does. did he come from an abusive home? Was his mother um, or father? No. His mother is very controlling. Okay. She was very, very controlling. In fact, there were times when I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm married to his mother. Mm. And for years, I thought about going to my father in law and saying, hey, dad, this is what's going on in my life. Is this how it was when you first married mom? Is this how it was with her? And I never did. I never did do that. I didn't want to put him in that position. And I didn't know what I would do if he said yes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess he did come from a, a con- his mother was extremely controlling. So, so take us back now. You're in, you said La Jolla, La Jolla, La Jolla, La Jolla, La Jolla, La Jolla, La Jolla mm-hmm. California. And right. you've left a few times now. And do you have children at this point? 
No, no. Okay. Our son was not born until we'd been married 10 years. Okay. So this was all before him. In fact, the final time I left, well, let me back up. Right after we moved to La Jolla, so now we're into our marriage about not quite five years. We were back in Indiana visiting his grandparents, and one of his aunts had died. And his parents asked me to ask him to please be a pallbearer for his aunt. So I, we were in the back bedroom. Now, this was a small house, real small house. And I said, hey, you know, your mom said that your aunt's request is that you be a pallbearer. I didn't even hardly get those words out of my mouth. And he went ballistic. Mm. He was yelling and he was screaming. And, you know, how could I put him in that kind of position? He knows that I, you know, that I wouldn't ever do anything like that. How could you possibly think that I would do something like that? Like, I didn't ask him, his mother asked him, but that's the first time I was bruised. He grabbed me by the arm and he like threw me around the room. There's no way that his parents didn't hear that and his grandparents, they were all there. And the next morning I had fingerprint bruises on my arms and now I'm scared. So I thought, well, if I wear a sleeveless shirt because it was summertime, they're going to see the bruises on my arm. Surely they heard that fight. And somebody's going to come to my rescue here. Somebody's going to say something. Not one word. So the message to me was very clear. They knew who he was. And I was not to talk about this. It was not going to be addressed. It was like, do not embarrass our son and do not embarrass this family. Absolutely. Well, it's, the, it's that hidden, keep the secrets in and your family has these secrets and they're not going to intervene with your marriage. And by them not saying anything, they said a lot. They said a lot. So I internalized that and I thought, all right, nobody really wants to know about this. Plus, you've probably heard me talk about collective collusion. And that's a theory that I did not create. I didn't put those two words together, but I promote them all the time because collective collusion is that society is not going to question authority. And when authority is doing something wrong, they really don't want to know about it. And when it comes to abuse, that is absolutely the truth. And every person who lives in abuse, male or female, understands that when we come forward, nobody's going to believe us. We're not going to be believed. Few people, some people will believe us, but for the most part, we're not going to be believed. We're going to be questioned. We're going to be told that we're liars. And you know what? That's playing out today, right in public, in the media, it's playing out today. Look at Harvey Weinstein. Look at Dr. Larry Nasser. People knew what those men were doing, and nobody came forward for those people. And then, of course, Harvey Weinstein, everybody in Hollywood knew what was going on there, but nobody said a word until Gwyneth Paltrow came forward. So interestingly, she didn't come forward until she was wealthy and he couldn't hurt her anymore. Mm. So collective collusion, if I'm saying, if I'm thinking of what this term means, it means that the collective knows what's going on and holds the perpetrator, just doesn't say anything, keeps every keeps it quiet. Allows it to continue. Allows it to continue. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's a societal issue. It's not a male issue. It's not a female issue. It's a societal issue. Okay. So it's something that I, I'm trying to unmask. It's something I'm trying to address that I do address because it's like, I used to say there's this cloud that hangs over the heads or surrounds those people who are being abused and we don't know what it is, but we know it's there and it's collective collusion. It's knowing that 
were probably not going to be believed. And when I finally left my abuser, that's exactly what happened. And there were things like before I left, I was probably married 24 years before I accepted that I was living in abuse. And somehow I wasn't happy. I had left him three times. I walked on eggshells. I journaled, and that's part of what helped me get out. But I journaled for years and years. And about the time I was ready to leave, I looked back at my journals. And you know what was there? The same thing over and over and over. For years, I would write, don't say such and such. Mental note, don't use these words. Mental note, this is going to make him fly off the handle. So I lived in that for so many years, but somehow I was the frog. I was fried. I was boiled. But it didn't occur to me that my life, myself, was gone. Did he threaten you when you did leave? Or let me, let me, let me back up. When you did try to leave, was he very apologetic and say he would change? Or would he threaten you and say, if you leave, I'm going to kill you or something like that? Like, which way would he? I know people well, can go different ways. He has done that in the different times that I left. I don't think he would have killed me, but he threatened. And that's all it takes. Mm-hmm. Then, because you don't know. You don't know. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a gun person or a knife person. He was not a weapon person. But it was frightening. It was frightening. And so I believed him. When I, the final time I left, I just left a note. I wasn't going to get into anything with him. So I left a note and left. In fact, we worked together all that day because we owned owned business together. And we worked together all day long. But I knew what I was doing as soon as we got off. And miraculously, just as we were leaving work, because I kept thinking, how's this going to work? How's this, how am I going to actually get out? And something happened in the business and he had to stay. Something happened that was going to take him about an hour's worth of time. So I went home, packed what I, the last of the things I wanted, because I'd been moving things out over about a two month period of time and uh, grabbed the dog, put the dog in the car and I left him a note. And I had written the note several weeks before because I wanted it to be right. And I don't even know what it said, but anyway, I left a note and I left and I said, don't call me. Don't try to find me. Do not contact me. I'm gone because it would have been too dangerous to say I'm leaving. I'm leaving for good. And it was more complicated because we owned several locations of our business. So I wasn't just walking away from him and that marriage. I was walking away from my livelihood and a business that I had helped build for 30 years. So, so Mickey, what was the, I know everything was leading up to that, but was there a final straw? Like, what was that thing, that push, that shift that you finally knew the day, that day that you were going to leave him? That was going to be the final straw. That was going to be the day. Was there some specific? Yes. (laughs) And you know what? Anybody you ask who has lived in abuse and has chosen to leave knows the second, knows the moment that that decision is made. And I've written about this and I did a podcast about this. I was home, it was in November, and we lived in a state that is in the fall. You know, it was fallish, the trees were changing colors. And there was an eagle's nest right across from our house on the lake. Our house was on the lake, we had a big pool and boat dock in front. Yeah, I mean, we had it, we had it made, except that it was hell. <laughs> so I'm so sitting it looked, in my- it looked pretty on the outside, let's put it, it that way, right? It pretty on the outside. In fact, I used to say, I had a sign in my, my front yard and it said, I'm fine, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it 
it wasn't a real sign and I wasn't fine. But that's how I chose to present myself to the world. So and, and that's what we do. Those of us living in abuse, that's what we do. But anyway, um, so I'm sitting in my favorite chair and I had a cup of tea and the chair had nice wide arms and flat. So I had a book I love to read. I'm curled up in that little chair. It, it was kind of big because, you know, I could curl up in it. It was like it was enfolding me. Loving, looking out, looking at the leaves, reflecting on the water. The eagle came to its its nest, which it shouldn't have even been there still. But here's this eagle that I'm watching across the lake. It was just an idyllic, idyllic afternoon. And in comes my husband. I don't remember what he was mad about. I don't remember if he was angry when he came in. Probably now that I think about it, he probably was angry because I was at home having a nice afternoon and he had been at work and that was not okay. If he's working, I'm working. If he's suffering, you're suffering. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So he all of a sudden just went ballistic. And the next thing I know, he's got my arms, he's holding my biceps and he's like almost on top of me in this little chair and he's slamming my body against the back of the chair. And that was it. At that moment, I said, I'm done. I can't tell you, Tina, how many years and how many times I would say to myself, the next time I'm bruised, I'm gone. The next time I'm bruised, I'm gone. And then I would get bruised and then I would, he would apologize or I'd rationalize what happened or I shouldn't have said that. Took it on myself. For years, I said, next time I'm bruised, I'm gone. Well, this time I knew, this time I knew I was done. And that was it. So it took me four more months to leave. I ended up going to the divorce attorney on Valentine's Day. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, this is not a good place to be on Valentine's Day. And I said, oh, it's the best place I could be. (laughs) It's the best gift you could give yourself. Best gift I could give myself. So I had already, I had decided I was leaving. So I had never lived on my own at that point. I was 53 years old, 53 years old. I didn't know who I was. I didn't have any confidence in myself. I didn't know what I liked. Uh, Nothing. I, I had totally allowed myself to be erased. And I say allow myself because, and some people don't like to hear this, but the fact is that in that time, I could have at any point left and stayed gone. I didn't have to stay for 34 years. Mm-hmm. I left three times. I came back. First, it was that I didn't have any confidence. The other two times was it was the money. I had a nice life and I thought I can put up with this, the rest of this to have a nice financial secure life. That is not security. The nice house and the, the nice cars and swimming pools and living on the lake and joining a country club, those are not securities. Those are anchors. They, they hold you in a place where you don't need to be. But it took me years, years to accept that. So I decided I would go in. There was a city nearby our business, and I would go into the city to market our business. And each time I would go, I would run by the house take some clothes, take some things that he wouldn't notice that I had taken. And I started stashing them. And I had one really close friend. I started stashing stuff in her garage. And then I started looking for an apartment and miracle things. I'm telling you, miracle things. I was having a hard time finding an apartment because I knew I was going to take my dog. And I'd been looking for a couple weeks and I was driving past this segment of, I don't know, there might be 
200 apartments in this little area. And I called my best friend and said, I'm having such a hard time, but I'm driving past, I forget the name of the place, but I'm driving past such and such. And I keep feeling like that's where I'm going to live. And she said, oh my gosh, you need to call Anita. Anita has four apartments in there that she rents out. So I call Anita and I say, my friend referred me to you. And she said, I can't believe you're calling me. I have a one bedroom apartment that I had rented. I had not rented for two months because this girl said she was going to take it. 10 minutes ago, she called and canceled. Perfect timing. (laughs) I said, thank you, Divine timing, as they say, divine. Divine, divine. And then it turned out that it was furnished because I I couldn't take any furniture. Right, Turned out it was furnished. I didn't even know that. And she took my dog. (laughs) Wow, wow. So once, you know, it, it fits my belief that once we set our intention and our intention for good, the universe moves things all around to make it happen. That's happened so many times in my life. So I stay open when things, when nudges come, I... I pay close attention. Wow, Mickey. I know this story doesn't come lightly to you. And I know you. this is what you live now and you're sharing with so many others. But for the first time, I'm really hearing it. And then a lot of my listeners as well. And you know, thank you for just being so open and, and the strength and the faith. I know there's a lot of faith behind that mm-hmm. as well. So now we are, you're on your own. And or take us from there and how you kind of built yourself up. And, and now today, what, what beautiful things you do today with your network and your offerings and, and working with women. Sure. And it's, it's totally, I say, what I'm doing now, I say, is a God-sized mission. It's a divine inspiration. It's something that when it first erupted, I, and it was an eruption, I said, no way am I doing that. <laughs> So what I did first when I got divorced, I put myself in what I call uh, the repair shop. Because <laughs> I like that. I like that. I call, yeah, it was a repair shop because I knew that if I did not change me, I would attract another abuser or I'd go back to the one I just left. Mm-hmm. And that was not going to happen. So I, I had sort of begun... No, not sort of. I had begun some personal growth and paying attention to Deepak Chopra and people like that, Dr. John Maxwell. So I started learning that I could change myself. And that was when I got the strength, really, to say, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm leaving this. I mean, it was, I think that's what gave me the strength when I was bruised, that I, that I knew that was the last time. Sure. Because if I hadn't changed... I would have made an excuse again. So that's why I'm so big on personal growth. If we don't change, nothing changes. Mm -hmm. So in my five years in the repair shop, I paid for coaches and I hired, I went to counselors, I bought books, I went to every webinar and seminar and discussion that I could find. I just immersed myself in personal growth, in learning that the things that I'd been told about me were not true, learning that I have something to offer and that I'm not stupid. I'm a strong woman, but it took a long time to come around to that point. The other point I'm going to make is I just did a video and it's it's called uh, You Think You Can't Afford Personal Growth. I thought that too. Mm. I was wrong and so are you. Oh, I like <laughs> that. That's good. It's true because I didn't leave. We had a lot of money, but I did not get money. I had snuck a little bit of money out of our checking account, our joint checking account, but I couldn't take too much because he watched that like a hawk. 
So I left. I didn't leave with the clothes on my back like some women do. I didn't have to leave in, you know, with nothing. I didn't do that. But I didn't have much money. And I certainly was not going to live the life I'd grown accustomed to. But I knew that if I didn't improve me, if I didn't change me, nothing was going to change. So I got a credit card in my own name, which I was lucky that I could do. Some women don't have that option. But if you have that option, do it because you have to invest time and money in yourself. Very important. That is so important. It's important for everybody, but especially in these critical, critical times. Absolutely. It's absolutely necessary. So I, you know, I talk to a lot of women who say, I can't afford to leave. You can't afford to stay. Right, right. <laughs> you can't that's afford right. to stay. So that's what I did. I, I had read somewhere, and it's absolutely true. Credit cards can hang you or pull you out of the mud. They're just like a rope. Mm-hmm. They can hang you or they can pull you out of the mud. And I chose to use a credit card to pull me out of the mud. And it took a while to get it paid back off. But you know what? I'd do it again. I'd do it again because I had to have that personal growth. And I'm not going to get it by myself. Coaches are amazing because they see things in you that you don't see at all. And and also just, you were undoing what you were told for you know, over 20 plus years of that, Mm -hmm. you went over and over again, being told that you're stupid or dumb or whatever. It's, it's like listening to your own self is bad enough, but having someone else say it and repeat it and just, it continues to penetrate in such a deep way. So you had to undo that and unlearn Mm -hmm. that and also start to know that that isn't true. Right. Right. And that kind of brings us up to how I started doing surviving abuse. I've been podcasting for about three years. And my first podcast was called The Second 53 Years because I was 53 when I left. And I said, the first 53 years were for everybody else. And these 53 mine, this, these 53 are mine. So, <laughs> I love it. So I love that's it. where I came up with 53 years. But people didn't understand that. So my podcast producer is Christy Hausler. And Christy said, Mickey, why don't we try changing the name of your podcast? Let's change it. So we decided that it would be called Figuring It Out After 50. Because I always have taught, for 15 years, I've taught personal growth. But I never addressed abuse. I would talk around it, right. but I never addressed it. But sure. what I taught it's- was personal growth because that's the only thing that's going to change anything. So Figuring It Out After 50 is what I was doing. And I, I'm very techno challenged. So I went down to Christie's place in Key West and we live in South Florida. So it wasn't a long way to go. Alan, my new husband and I went down to see Christie and we were talking. I said, Oh, Christie, I forgot to tell you, I just recorded a a podcast and I I sent it to you less uh, in the last several days. We started talking in that podcast interview about domestic abuse. And I want you to take all of that out. Mm. And she said, why? And I said, it's too close to home. I am not going to talk about domestic abuse. And she, Chrissy and Alan, my husband and I, were sitting at this table. And Alan said, Mickey, why are you saying that? You know, you could change lives because of who you are now. And I said, no way. Yeah, no way. It's scary. My goodness. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. And so after about two hours of them talking to me and me, <laughs> and me bawling my eyes out and feeling like, I know this is what I'm supposed to do. I know that this has come up for a reason. This is one of those nudges that you don't ignore. But the rest of me, my heart and my soul were saying, 
oh my gosh, you're going to expose all this? You're going to talk about all this? You've never, ever talked about this. Are you kidding me? So there's this big battle going on in my head. But by the end of it, I said, I think you guys are right. I'll tell you what got me to do it. Christy's mom was diagnosed with cancer when she was a young teenager. And her mom said, this is a story Christy told me while we're sitting at the table. Her mom said, you know what? I'm not happy to have cancer, but I'm glad that God gave me this disease because I can show other people that a cancer diagnosis does not mean that your life is over at that moment. Right. You still have life. You can still do good. There's so much. And she became an incredible light and inspiration for other people who were diagnosed with cancer. She said, I think God gave my mom cancer because he knew what she could do with it. And I think God put you in the position of domestic abuse because he knows now that you're out and you're strong, you can make a difference. And you sure do, Mickey, I have to tell you. <laughs> and I want, and you really do. You are from the heart. You are, you know, I just love your videos. I love your Facebook group. And I just want you to share with the listeners all about what you do now and how they can find you because you truly are. And I'm so glad that you listened to that voice within and you listened to Alan. Shout out to Alan. Love you, Alan. And, <laughs> and listen to Christy because, wow, you have touched so many lives. So thank you for mm -hmm. listening. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. So my webpage is survivingabusenetwork.com. And from the webpage, you can access my podcast, which is called Surviving Abuse Podcast. And it's got all the podcasts. I, I think I've posted, I think I've posted 110 podcasts now. So they're all there. Some of them are Surviving Abuse Network. Some of them are Figuring It After 50. And then the newest ones are Surviving Abuse, but they're all there. And they're all valid. They're all vital. And they all apply to Surviving Abuse. So that's my website. I do live videos on Facebook. I uh, usually post them first on Surviving Abuse Network, which is my open page on Facebook. I have a secret page too that is available for those women who aren't in a position to be in an open group. And I, I write blogs. So I've just covered a whole lot of areas. I want, I want the message out that domestic abuse is real and we don't have to live with it. So the more people I can hit with that, the more people I can say that to and have them listen. And I, I'm late. Thing has really changed too, which is amazing, Tina. When I started Surviving Abuse Podcast, which was in May of 2017, it was hard to get any women to come on my show and talk. Absolutely. People didn't want to do it. When I started, I was the only podcast about domestic abuse from the perspective of an abused woman. Now there's three or four podcasts and I'm finding guests. I'm finding women who, and some women are coming to me and saying, I'd love to be on your show. So it's changed in that short a time. In less than a year, people are gaining more voice, gaining more confidence. And that's, that's so important. And I hope that I've inspired some of those women. I know that hashtag me too has made a difference. I know that this mess with Rob Porter and Jenny, um, Willoughby, you know, all of that's coming forward. So, but we're talking about society changing. We're talking about collective collusion. So I'm not under any misconception that all of this is going to change immediately. It's not, but the willingness of people to come forward, I hope right now it's, it's a small ripple and I want it to become a huge wave 
So I hope that I'm part of leading the way to that happening. Absolutely. And I'm going to put everything in the show notes. So if you're listening to this podcast, I'm going to put all of Mickey's information in the show notes. Also, I think it's very important to note that if you are listening to this and you want to join her secret group, you will contact her through her website because she does not give that out, I would believe. Right, Mickey? That's right. That's right. And Facebook has changed a lot about how that happens. And secret groups, I used to be able to have people fill out a form. I would make sure that they qualify. And then, because I don't want anybody in that secret group that is pretending to be someone they're not. Sure. And then it used to be that then I could send them a link. Now you still have to go through the process on my website. But then once I've gone through that, then uh, you have to friend me on Facebook and then I can put you in my secret group. Yes. So it's a convoluted process, but that's what Facebook has set up right now. So that's what we have to do. And then just to clarify for the listeners, the women that you work with or the people that are in your group, they are out of abuse at this point? It's both. Some of them are still in and some are out. Okay. I started out my niche to start with was women over 50 who have left abuse. And it's really, I'm now attracting a lot of younger women and some of them are still in and they're looking for, they're looking for validation that they are actually living in abuse. It's so common for women living in abuse, not to realize that they live in abuse. And I listened to a TED talk, and I don't remember the woman's name, but she was a Harvard graduate, and she lived with a man who held a gun to her head, who held a knife to her throat, who pushed her down the stairs, and she did not admit to herself that she was living in abuse. Wow. So that's how... That's how conditioned we become. We think we're the strong ones. We are the strong ones. We are the good ones. We are, we have big hearts, those of us who live with abusers. But the mistake that we make is accepting responsibility for their illness or for their, whatever their drama, trauma is. And that's just not healthy for anybody. That's what I realized when I finally left. He didn't have me to blame anymore. Right. So he had to figure out what he was going to do. So... Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's so common. Ah, so common. And I'm so, we're so glad. And so many listeners, if you're listening again, I'm going to have all the information, but thank you so much for sharing your story, being vulnerable and continuing to really help other people and, and really be that support because there could be somebody listening right this minute that really needs to hear this. So Thank you so much for coming on the series of Trouble to Triumph and being our guest today. So I'm so appreciative to you, Mickey. Oh, thank you, Tina. I I appreciate having the opportunity to, to tell my truth, speak my truth. Well, thank you. Have a fantastic day. Namaste, my friend. Namaste. Thank you so much for listening today. If you feel someone you know close to you is in a situation of domestic violence, please go ahead and share this episode and share any of the information in the show notes. Also, if you are looking or anyone you know to connect with spiritually minded people, to have a positive mindset and connect to spiritual topics, join my Facebook group, the Intuitive Woman Facebook group. There we share non-judgment and we enjoy each other's company as we share positivity, light, and peace. May you have a pleasant day. Namaste. Namaste.